Hello, this is Daniel Hartman and Yossi Klein Halevi, and this is the Shalom Hartman Institute's podcast, For Heaven's Sake, our special edition, Israel at War. And today is day 47. And our theme for today, which is engulfing all of Israeli society, is burying soldiers, freeing hostages. And if you want to understand Israel, this is, in many ways, where we are. Yesterday, at 7.30 at night, I attended the funeral of Eitan Dishon, who is the grandson of one of the first founding fellows of the Institute and founder of our high school. And thousands of people were there. 7.30 at night, raining, thousands of people were there. Whoever saves one life, it's as if you've saved a whole world. And whoever takes one life, it's as if you've destroyed a whole world. And I don't want to count, but Beliayin Hara, our worst nightmares haven't materialized. But every funeral is attended by thousands. And Israeli society as a whole is involved in burying our soldiers in sitting Shiva, in visiting Shiva houses. I don't know how many funerals and Shivas I've already gone to, and everybody is the same. People go to funerals that they don't even know. For Eitan Dishon's funeral, I had a driver taking me and he was in the car, and the funeral was about an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes. And as I'm walking out, he's there. He doesn't know, never met David, Dishon or Gila Dishon, who worked at the Institute, the grandparents didn't know the family, but he just knew there was a funeral. He comes. This experience of burying our soldiers has become a very dominant societal shaping experience. And Yossi and I, we wanted to talk about it today a little bit. What does it mean? What are we seeing and what is this doing? And Yossi, this, I, you've been, we've all, everybody, between shivas and funerals, this phenomenon of burying our soldiers, what does it mean to you? And what do you think it means to Israeli society? Look, we've all been to funerals of soldiers over the years with different wars. This feels a little bit different. And it feels different for a reason that we had previously discussed, you and I, in that October 7th changed the emotional and psychological ground rules, where it's not that it's any less of a tragedy for parents and grandparents to be burying children, but there's something that happened on October 7th where hundreds of Israelis were murdered in a condition of helplessness that lessens the tragic impact of a Jewish soldier dying in defense of the country, in defense of the Jewish people. And now, that's what I hear at the funerals. I hear it in the eulogies. I hear it in the defiance. And again, it's not that families miss their fallen children any less, but there's a, a certain comfort that Maybe Israelis once felt at the beginning 
in the early years of the state, after the Shoah, where, okay, Jews have died in such large numbers, in such a state of helplessness that now we're, we're at least defending our country. And I think that there's something that has returned in the Israeli psyche from those early years. It's also something that we've, we've talked about as well, Daniil, which is this, what Israelis used to call Ein Brera, there's no choice. And the expression Ein Brera really went out of fashion. And it went out of fashion after the Yom Kippur War, when we started to think, well, maybe we did have a choice. And then Sadat comes to Jerusalem, and now we see, well, you know, maybe we don't always have to live by our sword. October 7th has brought us back to a primal Israeli state of no alternative. And I think these are the factors that are playing in. I, I really appreciate that. You use the word lessening the tragedy. That's not what I experienced. And I know you wouldn't belittling the tragedy. No, not not the personal tragedy, but that right. somehow. But it wasn't even for me, I maybe I'll let me frame it and it's not arguing, but it has it's a different experience. I find these funerals emotionally exhausting, filled with tragedy, filled with mourning, raw mourning, raw. Not just parents, but soldiers and military like it's all nothing. This is not a formal soldiers openly weeping and hugging, it's just, kissing, and talking other. about yeah. it, and and yeah. there. So this bearing soldiers and and the shiva, which I would say there's almost not a family in Israel which hasn't participated in this at least once. Yeah. And, and we all know there was this beautiful young boy, a family who made aliyah, you know, and they say, you know, we, we're new here. Could people please come? And it creates a huge traffic jam and they shut it down because 30,000 people get up and show up. And this is not please come three days from now. In two hours, he's being buried and come. So we who aren't on the front, this has become a defining aspect of this war as it goes on. And what I sense is... And this is what you spoke about, an unbelievable strength together with the morning. It's like we're, we're combining two experiences. <laughs> and yeah. over and again, I thought Israelis would break earlier. That's the truth. You, you said, Daniil, you don't understand. And I think you were right, Yossi. The sense of purpose, of the combination of strength and mourning at the same time. Now, that's even more exhausting. Because you could be strong and don't mourn. Which was the model in the early years of the state. You certainly don't mourn visibly. But here, it's like, yeah. it's, a, it's like you have, you're strong and you're mourning. Two things that are called upon. And you see the families and you see they're both there. You also see... It's an emotional contradiction. Yes, it is. Yeah. And it's exhausting. Yeah. yeah. It's like after yeah. I had a Shiva visit today to the, it's again, it's just an emotionally exhausting experience. Like just even watching the family speak about their son, speak about, the mother was saying how when she said goodbye to her son, because she drove him back down to Gaza, just on Thursday, he, he died, I think, uh, Sunday night. Um, she said, ah, he's okay. 
She saw him meet his fellow soldiers, and they weren't militaristic. It wasn't bravado. There was just purpose. There was shared purpose. Now, that shared purpose, the family shared with us today, it didn't create this emotional shutdownness. This soldier, he came home for 24 hours leave, and before he came, they shared, he asked to speak to an army psychologist before he came home. There's things that he saw and did, and he wanted to talk to somebody. And the army psychologist listened to him and said, the boy's name is Eitan, which in English means strength. And he said, you're Eitan, you're strong. I hear you. When you go home, I don't want you sharing this with anybody. So it's not that the soldiers are this gung-ho, you know, Mm -hmm. waiting to die for the country. Not at all. But there's a sense, a deep sense of purpose, which creates strength. And strength in the family with the morning together. And just even watching it is emotionally exhausting. The other part that you see as you see these thousands of people, and again, our audience outside of Israel, you know, this is standing outside for an hour and a half, no seats, in the rain, thousands of people, thousands of people. The funeral is an immensely private family experience. The army doesn't control the ceremony at all. They have nothing to say about it. The family, they have the chazan, the cantor leads the, the casket, and then the family decides. This family had 12 speeches. It was every single person who loved him and who he loved. And then the army says the closing benediction, and we have the uh, honor shooting, which is always seems to me to be just this bizarre, you know, three-round something. We are watching the family's story, and it's theirs. And at the same time, while we're there, this is a national communal event. It's not just, you know, you need a minion to bury someone like a minion. It's a community. It's both family and national, not even communal, national. You know, Danielle, it's interesting. What I'm about to say is not conscious in anybody's mind, but I think that it's playing out. And that is, in this last year, we came close to a kind of emotional civil war. We came close to the abyss in our inability to cohere in the most minimal way. And there's something in this mass embrace where we don't care what the politics of the family is. We don't care what part of society they come from. There's this unquestioning embrace of the totality of the Israeli experience. And that's what's playing out in the cemeteries. And it's not that, God forbid, it's a relief. It's not a relief, but it's it just an answer. It, it, you know, it I is. sometimes say, maybe it's not even an answer, it just is. There is another part, yes. you know, in tragedy. And so the first part, this bearing soldiers is not an event, it's a societal shaping it's, it's a reaffirmation of who we are. <laughs> or it's a, for me, I prefer expression. <laughs> but on, now let's shift to the other side, which is dominating our national conversation. <sighs> and by the time our audience begins to listen to this, I think the first ceasefire will commence and some of the hostages will be free. Some of the children, the first 10 or 12. Freeing hostages 
has been a conversation dominating public discourse. Nobody's pulling down hostage pictures in Israel. They're literally all over the place. It's all there's, every there's, new. There's a good reason to live in Israel. <laughs> there's a good reason to live in Israel. So, but freeing the hostages, and there was even a slogan of freeing them at all cost. Now, I want to just, there was a contradiction that developed in our society, which was a fascinating one, which I, I want to reflect on together. Early in the war, there was this theoretical question. What do we do? Do we fight if it's going to endanger the soldiers? And none of us wanted to the, the captives, the hostages. We don't want to talk about it. We sort of recognize that there is potentially a either-or choice that we're going to face. And one of the things that happened in Israel is that we refused to create a zero-sum game between defeating Hamas and saving our hostages. And the way Israeli society worked is they just said, yes and yes. They just didn't, we don't want to talk about it. We are going to do everything to free our hostages. We're going to do everything to destroy Hamas. What happens if they contradict? We just refused as a society to even entertain. Nobody was willing to say, with the exception of a small fringe, we have to fight even if it means the death of the hostages. We just, we don't want to, we don't talk that talk. Our hostages are going to come home. Hamas is going to be destroyed. And part of what emerged in this deal is a direct result of these two values. We fought as if hostages weren't there. And when a deal is possible, we embrace the deal. This moment, could I ask you, are you for this deal? You know, you don't have to, but um, are you willing to talk about whether you were for this deal? Look, of course I'm for it. And, and I'm for it because bottom line is the children must be brought home no matter what. That's my starting point. But I have to tell you, Danielle, I'm very worried that we have entered a new phase of this war. If I were Hamas, I would start dangling individual hostages every few days before the Israeli public. Oh, here's one. How many days are you willing to give us for this? Hamas's goal is to stop the war. And Hamas will still have almost 200 of our most precious commodity. And I am deeply concerned that the extraordinary balancing act that you've laid out, which is how Israeli society has navigated this dilemma until now. We have two goals which could potentially contradict themselves, defeating Hamas on the one hand, bringing the hostages back on the other. And for the last almost 50 days, we've managed to suspend or defer a contradiction between those two goals. What happens if Hamas uses this as the opening to begin changing the ground rules. The only thing that can divide Israeli society, and the only thing that I think can stop the war, is by forcing us to choose between the war and the hostages. And, I, and here, I am so profoundly ambivalent, because I believe, on the one hand, that it is in our long 
term existential interest to reestablish Israeli deterrence after October 7th, and that cannot be done in the Middle East without defeating Hamas. I believe that, and I think many Israelis believe that. On the other hand, and here's the ambivalence, we're talking about not only a core value of the Israeli ethos, which is redeeming the captive, but an ethos that has defined the Jewish people for thousands of years. It is the definition of Jewish solidarity, pidyon shvuim, redeeming the captive. If we make the decision, which in terms of our strategic needs, I believe we would have to make to sacrifice the hostages and go for victory, the loss of trust within the Israeli public will be so profound that I don't know if we would recover as a society. So See, that, too, that too is an existential need to maintain our basic trust in our solidarity. That's an existential need. I believe that Israel's greatest source of strength is our moral character and our collective unity. I'm not afraid of anything other than undermining those two. And when I look at the hostage deal, the greatest threat to our soldiers and to our ability to win is that core spirit of the Jewish people being marginalized. And there's this Talmudic saying that when something is certain and something is possible, you have a possible claim, you have a certain claim, the certainty always wins. I don't know what tomorrow will be. I just know today. And I look at, and here I want to share with our, our audience, Israeli society on the left and the right, and was even interesting, even in the government, all of the Likud, even the religious Zionist party, with the, the, the exception right, of the far, Ots, the the far, far right, right party. party, with the exception of Otsma Ben-Gvir, they even announced they were against the deal, then they heard the report, and they came out for it. This, Yossi, is our strength. This, I know, is our strength. What might happen in the future is what might happen. And I think part of what we need to do as a people, as we think about this freeing of hostages, is just think about it day by day. Don't think about it tomorrow. Don't try to conceptualize what might be a danger. And that's a perfect example of what you did. You said you're for the deal, but you're nervous. So I, you're doing exactly the move that I think we should do. You're saying here, this moment, this is what we have to decide. What's going to be tomorrow? We might have to make another decision. That's strength. You know, when you go to war, there's this sense of people have your back. You know, I remember when my brother-in-law, who was killed in the first war in Lebanon, we waited two years to get his body back. And for the first year, we really didn't know if he was alive or dead, and it wasn't. But for one second, we didn't think that his situation was my family's problem. There's something about the beauty of Israel and about this spirit, which... Even the soldiers going to Aza now, not the technical notion that we know we're going to try to get them back, but, you know, this is our people, and we're, we're there. Um, so this is, for me, the, what I know and what might be. 
You know, and we had this experience with the Shalit case, which divided Israel at the time, even though it divided Israel after the fact at the time, there was just like now a uniformity of opinions, but we've been there before. And I think for me, this whole freeing hostages discourse and the unbelievably powerful decision of almost everybody on the political map to live up to the saying, we're going to do everything that we can, including, by the way, a few days ceasefire is just going to strengthen Hamas. We know that. Their soldiers are on the verge of exhaustion. They're going to rest. We know it. But that's what we do. A people is there for each other. I so much appreciate the way you phrase this. But let's look at the negative consequences. How many soldiers, God forbid, will die because of the strengthening of Hamas, Hamas's ability to regroup? How many Israelis died as a consequence of the Shalit deal, which released a thousand terrorists, including uh, Yechia Ayash, the, the current head of Hamas, who planned this operation. And what worries me as well is that we're not in a position as a small country to keep mobilizing massive armies. We've now mobilized an enormous army hundreds of thousands of reservists. The determination, the morale in the army is something that we haven't seen here for many decades. Those are not conditions that can be easily reproduced. And so, on the one hand, yes, I'm with you, Daniel. This is our inner strength. And, and I do worry if we opt for military victory over the release of hostages, it will do irreparable damage to the fabric of Israeli society. But at the same time, I think we have to look squarely in the face of the potential consequences here and understand just how serious the trade-off is that we may be making. I hear you, Yossi. And one of the problems of Israel is that it also has to be a real country. <laughs> And real politique and has to be taken into account. And one of the reasons why it's such a hard country to be a political leader in is that you don't get to just look at strategic national interests. You just don't. Strategic national interests have to also do with our spirit and our soul. So for me, the Gilad Shalit deal was a high point in the history of Israel despite the consequences that you've said very clearly. And I appreciate your ambivalence. But for me, Israeli society said, this is our son. This is not Gilad Shalit, this is my son. And I think at the end of the day, we are stronger when we do that. But you're right. Listen, we make decisions on an ongoing basis to endanger soldiers' lives for the sake of our principles. I never see that as a weakness. I think at the end, that's a strength. But your caution, as we continue to bury soldiers, and as God willing, we'll be continuing to free hostages, what that'll mean for our society is both going to represent the best, but also some very, very difficult moments uh, in the days to come. We look forward to welcoming our family home. This is, for heaven's sake, Israel at war, Day 47. 
For more ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute about what's unfolding right now, sign up for our newsletter in the show notes or visit shalomhartman.org forward slash Israel at War.